are listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, the host of the podcast, and this week Paul Doroshenko is not joining us, but we are so excited because we have an extra special guest. We are joined this week by Attorney General David Eby. Uh, He is a lawyer. He's the Attorney General of British Columbia, and his background is in poverty law, um, which is a really interesting intersection with the work that he's been doing since he took on the job as AG um, with reform in ICBC, uh, uh, dealing with ICBC insurance premiums, insurance rate hikes, uh, premiums for bad drivers, mechanisms for that, as well as uh, luxury cars and money laundering. So he's going to talk to us a little bit more about the work that he's done on that, uh, some of the criticism that he's received from people in relation to uh, the changes at ICBC, but he does provide some surprising insight into how this is affecting all lawyers uh, and not just uh, the plaintiff's lawyers, and as well gives a very comforting update to what's going to be happening to the future of traffic court. So everybody is going to be very interested to hear about that, and uh, with Without further ado, we're going to go straight to the interview with Attorney General Eby. Thank you again to Attorney General David Eby for joining us on the podcast this week. Uh, Minister uh, Attorney General David Eby, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, I invited you on because although your job deals with so many different things, sort of driving has been driving a lot of the work that you've been doing since you took over the position. Um, I, I imagine you'd probably agree with that. Yeah, I mean, really, nothing focuses the mind quite so much as sitting around a cabinet table and having all your colleagues stare at you as you try to explain by why $1.3 billion in public money has evaporated from the budget and can't be spent on public programs, schools, hospitals, and so on. Uh, so, yes, driving the implications of the increasing accident rate in British Columbia and the loss at ICBC has been front and center. Uh, it's definitely the issue that keeps me up at night. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people have been really critical of you for the um, sort of position you've taken about lawyers. And you published an op-ed, I guess it was last week, um, sort of responding to that. And I, I wanted to thank you because I thought it was a very balanced, um, a very balanced piece. And I, I think you presented a fair opinion. Is it hard for you, like being a lawyer yourself, Um and sort of being perceived by a lot of lawyers as as doing something bad for the legal community? Sure. Well, you know, I've always felt myself personally aligned with the personal injury bar. Uh, You know, I grew up in a house. My dad was a personal injury lawyer, so I learned early on about the evils of insurance companies and uh, how personal injury lawyers stand up for the little guy. And uh, and in my own practice, uh, and especially in relation to police accountability, I filed the personal injury actions and saw it very much as being a way for people to obtain justice outside of the formal complaints process, which was very broken. And so, um, you know, it's it's challenging for me to say, look, there's a problem with personal injury law when it comes mm-hmm. to uh, car accidents. We need to fix it. And also to be, uh, frankly, mildly critical of uh, the conduct of some lawyers uh, in the province and, and the way that they're advertising and uh, 
and and also knowing the important roles that they play. So it, it is a difficult position to be in, and it's a nuanced position, and politics doesn't lend itself to nuance very well. No, it, does, it doesn't seem that way. And we don't, like, we don't in BC want to go down that road where we have, you know, I'm sure you've been paying attention to the diamond and diamond scandal over with the Ontario Law Society and their advertising and the bait-and-switch approach that they're allegedly taking with their clients. And I think we were sort of really quickly headed for a crash course to that. Um, and so it, it may be good in some respects to sort of rein in the um, profitability, I guess, of dealing with personal injury cases to try and prevent people being taken advantage of. So I think a lot of people aren't really sort of willing to discuss that uh, angle about what it is you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think from from my perspective, just so you know, your listeners are clear about what we're really going after here. It's it's making the um, the system proportionate and the and the way we resolve disputes proportionate to the matter that is being disputed. So when you have a claim that's under fifty thousand dollars, you don't need BC Supreme Court, uh, you know, uh, tens of thousands of dollars of expert reports on both sides. Like the the data is right now that for a hundred thousand dollar claim in BC Supreme Court, we're at somewhere usually around forty to fifty thousand dollars. In disbursements, that doesn't count the cost of operating the court itself, uh, or of uh, of ICBC's operations. Just straight up disbursements. And wow. so, um, you know, when you're talking about a fifty percent ratio of the cost of of resolving the dispute, it's just not it, it's just not working. And so, how do we fix these things? And and you know, it's it's very challenging. It's a moving. Uh, it's a it's a flying plane. So you have to make the changes while it's in the air. Um, and, uh, and there are a lot of people who are dependent on the system as it stands and, uh, they're not easy decisions, you know, to, to cut ICBC's advertising budget by 50%, uh, impacts, uh, you know, people who work in the advertising, uh, agency that, that saw that cut. Uh, and when you, uh, crack down on fraud in relation to auto body repair, it means more time spent by auto, auto body repair shops that are already working on thin margins dealing with, uh, oversight that maybe they don't need. Maybe it's someone else down the road that's causing the problem. And it's the same with lawyers. And, and it is a challenging thing, but we have to do it. Well, it's, it's actually interesting that you mentioned, you know, audio body repair shops and marketing firms, because I think, you know, lawyers, we're very good at being outspoken. And we're a very vocal community because we have skill sets that sort of lend ourselves to public speaking without much difficulty. And so a lot of people are hearing the complaints from the lawyers. And, you know, even I have a hard time being sympathetic to lawyers because, you know, we have a very privileged position um, in society. But I, I think there are a lot more people people that are affected by what's happened at ICBC um, and the changes that need to be made to fix it. Um, and it's nice to hear that somebody's talking about those. I wanted to ask yeah. you, oh, go ahead. No, yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I think that um, there are a bunch of different categories. And I, one of the things that I've tried to be, be clear about from early on is uh, it's uh, it's going to be unhappy for a lot of people that are dependent on ICBC for their business in one way or another. Um, because the bottom line is the premiums they take in don't cover their operating expenses. And so um, anyone who receives those operating expenses, whether through, you know, reimbursement of disbursements or through um, through various other mechanisms of ICBC paying out, um, they've been bracing for uh, various challenging conversations that we have to have. 
Yeah. What about the ICBC defense bar? Because, I mean, we hear a lot from the personal injury bar and the lawyers um, who who take that, you know, their income from a percentage of what they collect for the clients. But there's plenty of lawyers out there who never work for plaintiffs, who do just defense work. Are any of the changes that you're making expected to impact that side of the bar? Um, so the, the changes that we're uh, talking about making are going to affect about 80% of the uh, litigated, currently litigated files um, uh, that that go to BC Supreme Court uh, and uh, and don't see uh, trial, <laughs> the vast majority of them, about ninety plus percent, don't see any trial at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, there is less work as well for uh, defense firms. Um, many of these claims will be resolved through the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Uh, with ICBC representing itself instead of hiring a lawyer to represent it as a, as a cost-saving measure. And so is, um, is and the intention then for ICBC to represent itself through its adjusters? or That's correct. Okay, so it's not going to be lawyer versus little guy. Uh, no, there will still be, uh, uh, you know, the adjusters will probably have questions that they might need legal advice on, but uh, the intention is that ICBC will largely represent itself. Uh, and uh, and that uh, individuals can hire a lawyer or they can represent themselves. Um, the complaint about it has been, well, you're going to have these adjusters who, who do these all the time and then people who maybe are less experienced. Um, but the uh, Civil Resolution Tribunal is set up uh, intended uh, uh, to be in situations of uh, power imbalance, a strata corporation versus a person who owns a unit, uh, you know, a, a large nonprofit versus, uh, versus a single member, uh, this is not different in that kind of situation, and they have ways of dealing with that through the role of the adjudicator, uh, evening things out between the two. Yeah, and um, I know, like I, I, I know as a lawyer who deals with tribunals often, as as most of my practice does, um, th- th- this isn't the case. But a lot of people have concerns with the civil resolution tribunal being a government tribunal, um, representing sort of or potentially representing the government interest in the sense that you know ICBC's got to save money to to fix this debt. What do you say to people who are concerned about that? I understand the concern. I've had a lot of conversations with people about um, the role of tribunals and and. We have tribunals that decide uh, matters related to people's human rights uh, in the province. You know, this is uh, uh, about as serious as it gets, and we have a qualified tribunal that deals with these things. Uh, we are hiring uh, and have hired a significant number of uh, personal injury lawyers from the plaintiff side to act as adjudicators uh, uh, in this. And I say we, it's actually the tribunal itself that goes through a merit-based hiring process independent of government. Um, and... So, you know, I, I do understand um, uh, that this is not uh, judicial independence in the sense of, uh, of a judge who's earning, you know, $300,000 a year and has the pension and, uh, and all of the, uh, the hallmarks of, uh, of that type of independence. It's, it's a tribunal. It's someone uh, from the community who has paid a good wage but hasn't paid those judicial salaries mm-hmm. uh, and is appointed for a fixed period of time and uh, is independent of government. Uh, we don't. Uh, I don't uh, review their decisions and decide whether or not those should go ahead. So you know, <laughs> it's a, yeah, that's right. It's a spectrum, right? It's a spectrum of independence, and it's definitely uh, not on the full judicial end of the spectrum. But it is a long way from a tribunal that's under government control. 
Right. What about, um, like, the salaries for the tribunal? Is it something that, you know, if the ICBC debt situation eventually becomes resolved and, you know, assuming that the NDP stays in power for the next 12 years like the Liberals did, um, is it is it something that uh, you can see ultimately allocating more money towards tribunal salaries to create more of those hallmarks of judicial independence? Oh, if we're, if we're noticing that we're not able to hire people with the qualifications or skill sets that we need, then that's something that would come up through the Civil Resolution Tribunal to deal with salaries. Um, the, the, what you're going to see is that if ICBC starts uh, returning uh, back to a financially stable position of actually being revenue positive, uh, is that the, the priority for government will be on uh, reducing rates for British Columbians. We do pay in British Columbia um, somewhere in the top three highest rates in Canada. Um, the only province higher than us is Ontario in terms of rates charged. Um, and so uh, there's opportunity for us, hopefully, to provide some of the benefits of having public auto insurance back to British Columbia through lower rates, and we're going to do that. Right. Now, you mentioned cutting ICBC's advertising budget in half, and I was um, Paul and I discussed a couple episodes ago um, the decision to divert some of ICBC's advertising funds into police enforcement. Are you the genius behind that idea? Uh, I'm one of the, uh, the functioning minds behind <laughs> that plan. The frustration that I had was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be driving around and there'd be an ad on the back of the bus about, you know, uh, do the do the ICBC online test to see whether you're up to speed on your driving knowledge. Oh, yeah. um, and that was a very significant uh, financial commitment by ICBC to do that campaign. And I was like, well, who is going to do that test? The exact drivers uh, that are the ones that are driving conscientiously, thinking about how they're driving, are the people going to be doing that test? That doesn't get the message through to people who are using their cell phones while they're driving. It doesn't get the message through to people who are drinking and driving and so on. What gets the message through is the message delivered at the side of the road by a police officer, and that's when uh, I understand they call your office. Yeah. And so <laughs> so the, the reality is that, um, that we're trying something different, uh, that we have an escalating number of collisions on BC roads. So we set a record last year with more than 350,000 collisions on BC roads. And, uh, and so we're going to try something different to see whether that makes a difference in the numbers. Yeah, increased enforcement is something that, you know, certainly the studies have shown finds that it actually course corrects people's behavior to stop things from happening. So I, I was really happy yeah, like, to see likelihood that. of detection, right? Yeah. Exactly. You perceive you're going to get caught and you're not going to do the thing that you don't want to get caught doing. It's interesting, right. though, that you mentioned this this course um, that they were sort of flogging on the back of the bus because I took the course. I don't need to be taking that course. Um, right, right. I knew all the answers. Shocker. Um, um, but the um, but the course is a really interesting thing because when you want to change people's behavior, um, when you identify people who need a behavior change and you can get to the intervention stage, have you thought at all about allowing people to, you know, earn back some of their points from their driving records or um, decrease their driver risk premiums in exchange for taking um, online education or driver training? Um, what we've been looking at is similar, but, uh, but, but different. Um, we, uh, have been looking at carrots in terms of, uh, positive reinforcing, positive, um, uh, behaviors, positive driving behaviors, uh, among especially new and experienced drivers where we would potentially provide a reduced, uh, premium for completing a certified driver education program. So I'll give you an example of what ICBC has been observing, which is that, there is a small cohort of people 
um, fewer than 10% of new drivers that are failing three or more of their driver test exams and ICBC, and they're taking multiple tests in a short period of time, and ICBC is speculating uh, that uh, these drivers are uh, basically using the driver exam test as driver training. So Mm -hmm. they practice the test, uh, they keep booking the test until they eventually pass it. Um, So how do we encourage people to instead book a course with a driving instructor uh, that will train them in in accident avoidance behavior and being aware of what's happening around their vehicle and so on? Um, So those are the kinds of things we are looking at carrots uh, and not just sticks uh, in terms of dealing with this. That's a very interesting um, suggestion, I know, but in some American jurisdictions, they do have those kind of remedial courses um, uh, for people to... uh, uh, that's required. I'm not sure if it reduces the penalty, but that's just required as a condition of uh, of being caught in one of these scenarios. Yes, and in Alberta, I believe they also allow you to either buy back points or take some driver training to have points removed from your record. Um, mm. And if we have higher crash rates than Alberta, maybe it's a model that the government might consider. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. We're yeah. not currently looking at it, but yeah, it's an interesting suggestion. Um, Now, you are also responsible for some increases in driver risk premiums that are coming very soon to BC's roads. That's right. Um, So if you're uh, uh, two or more distracted driving uh, tickets uh, or you're driving uh, well impaired, um, it will have a greater impact uh, on you financially. Um, And uh, there are other uh, risk premiums as well. So um, the idea here is that um, people who are engaging in higher risk behaviors are driving a lot of these costs, and so they should be paying a greater share. It's not just that, but also in September, we have uh, uh, an historic shift in how ICBC calculates uh, insurance premiums for people, where if they do uh, fall into the category of someone who is causing at-fault accidents or has uh, is receiving these types of tickets, uh, that, uh, that indicate they're a high-risk driver, they're going to be paying uh, significantly more for insurance. And people who don't uh, will be paying significantly less. And so uh, it's capped at 20% in terms of an impact over the year uh, so that people don't have rate shock. Um, uh, but it will be, uh, uh, people do need to be thinking about that uh, when they're engaging in certain behaviors on the road, that these will have significant financial impacts on them. Uh, it's something that you see much more in private models. Like in Ontario, they have a much more uh, significant uh, financial impact in engaging in risky behaviors. And uh, and it's much cheaper if you have a, a longer history of good driving. And we're trying to replicate some of that uh, in the public model because the, the public model as it stands hasn't adequately communicated to people the risk that they're increasing for every, everybody on the road when they drive like that. Okay. Um, as far as looking at like the increased risk uh, and the premiums, are you at all concerned about the way that, and you know, I'm, I might be giving away some of my secrets here, but the way that traffic tickets are litigated, often um, drivers or their lawyers will go into court and they'll strike a deal um, so that the ticket doesn't appear on the driving record and there are no points and they don't attract that. Um, I've heard some rumblings and maybe you can or can't answer this, that they're going to be doing away with the ability to resolve tickets that way. Uh, I've not heard anything about a change in policy in relation to that, although it may be happening out of the public safety um, office, which is where um, uh, police policy is is dealt with. So I'm not sure that that nobody in government is having a look at that. Um, but uh, 
but that's a very interesting point. One of the things that we are getting rid of or, or limiting anyway is your ability to um, uh, buy back essentially an asphalt accident where you pay for all of the uh, repairs and essentially avoid the asphalt designation on your uh, driver record. That's being significantly limited in our reforms because the actuarial data shows that if you cause one asphalt accident, you're significantly more likely to cause a second. Uh, and uh, it needs to be reflected in the amount of money that you pay in your insurance because of the cost that that drives. Now, the government before you also uh, passed legislation, although never um, put it into force and effect, to eliminate traffic court and move traffic ticket disputes into uh, a tribunal. Is that something that you're intending on following through on, or are you going to wait and see how these changes play out before making that decision? Yeah, we won't be bringing that legislation into force, um, but uh, certainly... Uh, I understand why they were looking at uh, at moving this out of provincial court uh, with the Jordan decision out of the Supreme Court of Canada saying we have to get criminal matters in to court within a certain amount of time. Otherwise, people with serious criminal charges don't see their day in court, um, thinking that uh, provincial court is tied up with uh, with uh, traffic infractions uh, and, and judicial resources are, are going to that instead of to these more serious offenses. Uh, it's, a, it's a very... Um, uh, it's a suggestion that's very appealing. Uh, the reality for our government is that um, with the ICBC changes and the Civil Resolution Tribunal and all that, um, and this is just not uh, not a priority at this at this point in time. Well, that that's very refreshing for me to hear because I was in traffic court for multiple tickets today, and I thought, oh man, I'd I'd really miss going to traffic court if they if they took it away. Um, <laughs> I like it. You know what? It's nice to go and and meet the police officers, the people who are doing the work that are on the other side. I think that there's a a real sort of sense of understanding that we've been able to develop with the police as a result of, of seeing them in traffic court. And I think uh, I see a lot of drivers developing that same sort of understanding who are self-represented. So I think there's positives about the court process. Man, oh man, I worry, I do worry about the driver who knows the police officers in traffic court personally. That is uh, <laughs> it's a concerning profile of a driver in <laughs> British Columbia, I've got to say. Yes. <laughs> Most of them are represented by me now. <laughs> yes, yeah, well... Helping you pay the rent, that's good news. Yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> speaking of paying rent, um, one of the other things I think the big shock that you got when you came into uh, this job wasn't just the you know $1.3 billion of ICBC debt. It was also issues with money laundering and how significant and deeply that's been running in the province. Um, and you've, you've talked a lot in a lot of media interviews about um, the casinos and the money laundering through fentanyl. Um, but one thing that you have sort of mentioned but not uh, sort of talked about a lot more because I think a lot of people aren't paying as much attention to it is the way that the automotive industry has been playing a role in the money laundering. And I know there's obviously um, a lot that you can't talk about there because of ongoing investigations, but uh, to the extent that you can, can you expand on that? Yeah. Um, so uh, one of the pieces that was identified in um, Peter German's first review where he looked at the casino issue and the, the bulk cash transactions and that kind of stuff, uh, was that he uh, received information that suggested we had an issue in the luxury car sector as well, in particular, specifically that uh, uh, criminals with bulk cash, $20 bills, hard to manage, large volumes, um, could purchase luxury cars for cash um, with no uh, anti-money laundering paperwork associated with it. 
that they could then potentially export those cars out of British Columbia and sell them for a profit uh, in other jurisdictions and and thereby uh, not only launder their money, but make a bit of money in a business transaction uh, as well, uh, essentially punch their tickets at both ends, is how it was described to me. Um, and so uh, in this review that he's doing now, we've asked him to go and dig into that allegation a little bit. Is it happening? How, how much is it happening? Can we narrow it down? Is it a certain uh, uh, luxury car dealer or is it a, a few of them? Or uh, And so one of the interesting things that's happened in the interim is um, the federal standing committee, uh, the finance committee, uh, made recommendations around Canada's anti-money laundering protocols and, and recommended that luxury cars be captured uh, mm-hmm. in uh, the must report category. Um, and, uh, so, uh, that they're catching up at the federal level on that. And, uh, Dr. German is doing the work right now to look into British Columbia specifically to see if you can identify patterns, uh, here in that kind of, uh, that kind of conduct. So is it likely then that we're going to see legislation coming, uh, to deal with, um, luxury car dealers reporting, you know, large sums of cash and duffel bags of twenties that are used to buy cars? Yeah, it's very likely at the federal level uh, in terms of FinTrack reporting, and and if not, it's uh, certainly a possibility at the provincial level along the lines of what you might have seen with uh, when there was an issue with scrap metal dealers buying, uh, you know, bulk copper from you know people that had broken into homes and stripped out all the wiring and that kind of stuff, or or cut uh, public uh, utility wires and and then taking it to scrap metal dealer, uh, requiring them to collect identification and so on and make reports. Um, so that that is a distinct possibility for sure. Now, you've been, I assume, following the really good investigative journalism work that's been done by Sam Cooper, um, especially in, in sort of the money laundering area. Um, he's talked a lot about the connection, too, between the money laundering and the, the drug trade and ICBC, which I find fascinating, although I feel like I barely understand it. Um, and my files are just collapsing on themselves. Now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I haven't, uh, I haven't actually seen uh, uh, Mr. Cooper's links uh, to ICBC yet. So oh, okay. I'll, well, I'll keep watching for those. Yeah, I'll send them to you. Um, okay. Well, then I guess you can't uh, talk about that. Um, as far as dealing with the um, sort of increase in distracted driving premiums, I want to take you back to that. Are you at all concerned about how this is going to impact? like families and people who are, are low income and how difficult it's going to be for them to pay compared to, um, you know, the people who are driving around their luxury cars and a $2,000 premium is just the cost of doing business. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an issue with, um, with traffic fines generally, uh, that we face. And, uh, and one of the big challenges around enforcement is, uh, you know, speeding tickets or insurance rates or whatever, if you have means, uh, potentially, that means that uh, it's not a consequence to you until your license is actually suspended. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we do have a system in BC that does ultimately lead to driver's license suspension at a certain stage and you know, hit a certain uh, level of points. And and so uh, that's it's dealt with. But you're right. I mean, uh, traffic fines uh, in some jurisdictions, I understand, have been tied to uh, to income levels to make them more relevant. Uh, to people, uh, so that it's not essentially buying a license to speed or to uh, to drive while distracted or so on. Um, the the reality, uh, I think, for the vast majority of British Columbians is that the fines are highly relevant and uh, and will make a significant impact uh, on them. And uh, and so that's the that's the tool that we have right now that we're using. 
A lot of clients that I talk to express concern because they don't know about sort of these, you know, quote unquote, hidden costs of their traffic tickets. Like if you get a cell phone ticket, they don't know that they're going to be paying the driver risk premium or the excessive speeding premium. Um, is there any plan in the works to educate people better at the time they're issued the ticket about the total cost associated with it? Um, it's not It's not currently part of our strategy, but I recently... Um I had a conversation with ICBC about this. Uh, just uh, I had seen some correspondence from an individual who was concerned about about notification like that. So I, I've heard these types of concerns as well, and ICBC has ensured that uh, they are sending out in a timely way uh, as soon as they get notice of the ticket, a letter to the individual, uh, so that that person knows and can budget for and, and potentially set up a payment plan for uh, the, the fine that they're going to see, uh, so that they know the full consequences of their actions. Yeah. I mean, I remember my, this going back many years, but w- shortly after the driver risk premium was first introduced, my brother, who was a terrible driver as a teenager, <laughs> um, got a driver risk premium invoice and he just like couldn't afford to pay it. Cause it came, you know, right around his birthday and out of the blue and had no idea about it. And so I think that that's a really positive change to, to tell people that they're, they're getting those premiums. What about, um, like a process that would allow ICBC to reduce the cost for people facing financial hardship. Um, there's uh, there's nothing in the works right now uh, on that front. Um, the reality is that a number of people will accumulate sufficient fines that are and sufficient sufficiently high insurance premiums that they can't afford it. And uh, the reality is maybe that British Columbia can't afford to have them on the roads. Um, and uh, just in terms of the impact that they can have uh, through these high risk behaviors. Um, it, uh, it's not currently on our agenda, although I do understand that, uh, sometimes, uh, when people are in court that, uh, uh, that they can work out, uh, payment plans, but, uh, but I don't know exactly if that's possible with, uh, with the tickets and, and certainly from the government side, there's no, uh, plan to do that. Okay. All right. Is there anything else you want to add about driving and your connection to driving that I missed? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll just say that uh, that I look at driving totally differently since taking on this job. I imagine you do as well. I uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, every time I, I drive past a, a police officer or I see a collision uh, or somebody uh, doing enforcement, uh, I, I see it totally differently. Um, having taken on this job now and uh, and uh, and seeing what's happening out there, so uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been a very interesting experience for me. Although the one and, thing you uh, don't I'm sure realize, a lot of lawyers work on this. Yeah, the one thing the, you, the one thing you don't realize is how bad of a driver you actually are until you start to read the Motor Vehicle Act and like think about all the laws that you break every day that you don't realize. Sure, that's the... I, I once got a ticket for not having a bell on my bike. Really. <laughs> I did. Well, there, are a lot of laws, there are a lot of laws out there. <laughs> at least you're honest about it, unlike um, mm-hmm. certain failed mayoral candidates who <laughs> shall go unnamed. <laughs> um, All right. Well, thank you so much again for joining us on the podcast. It was a really uh, a huge pleasure to have you on, and I really appreciate that you took the time out of your busy uh, work that you have to do. So, um, well, thanks for your interest, and thanks for educating British Columbians about these issues. Oh, thanks. Thank you.
Thank you again for the interview, Attorney General Eby. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast, and I really appreciate that you took time out of your busy schedule. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining in to that uh, portion of our podcast. We do have a few minutes left, which is great, because I wanted to talk about, um, just a reminder for everybody out there, the big changes to the criminal code that came into effect earlier this week on Tuesday. Uh, On Tuesday, we saw a number of significant changes to the criminal code and impaired driving laws. The most important is with respect to random breath testing. And I've talked extensively about random breath testing on the podcast and my concerns about the constitutional validity of random breath testing, as well as concerns about how significant uh, this is for anybody, any member of the motoring public. Um, What I wanted to pause and talk about now in relation to random breath testing is why you should not refuse to provide a sample. And this is something that I haven't talked about, um, but I think is important for people to know. As of December 18th, so Tuesday of this week, uh, the penalty for refusing to provide a sample has increased from the mandatory minimum $1,000 fine and one-year driving prohibition um, that it used to be to a $2,000 minimum fine. And a $2,000 minimum fine is a huge expense. We've talked about $2,000 fines uh, earlier when we talked about the increases to the cell phone premiums, which, of course, we also just talked about with Attorney General Eby. But the other, I I think, big concern about this is that it's essentially a tax on people who assert their constitutional rights. I know um, from my experience dealing with driving law cases and uh, criminal impaired driving and immediate roadside prohibition cases that a lot of people refuse to provide a breath sample on the basis that they feel that their rights are being violated. They refuse on the basis that they think they were stopped unlawfully or that they think that uh, they were treated badly by the police. But one significant reason that comes up frequently for my clients is that they're refusing to provide a sample on the basis of the fact that they haven't had anything to drink and they shouldn't have to blow. Essentially, you don't have grounds to ask me to blow. And now, the penalty for people who are asserting that constitutional right to be secure from unreasonable search and seizure, to say, no, you can't search my body and take my breath, is going to be a $2,000 fine, plus a one-year driving prohibition, plus a mandatory criminal record. And and I think that that is absolutely abhorrent. The idea of that just, uh, it, it, it is a tax on people who want to challenge the law. Because if you want to assert that your rights were violated and and you shouldn't have had to provide a sample, uh, perhaps refusing to do it might be viewed, and there's some court decisions to support this, there's also court decisions going the other way, might be viewed as the correct approach to assert that constitutional right rather than comply. Because if you comply, you provide the breath sample and you're over the limit, and then you're ultimately arrested, the evidence could still be admitted under Section 24.2 of the Charter, notwithstanding the violation of your constitutional rights. Um, And so it raises a real significant concern. We saw this as well in the IRP scheme. The people who um, participated in the process, who uh, served their suspensions, who paid all of their fines, um, who enrolled in and paid for the responsible driver program in the interlock before the law was found unconstitutional, 
all of those people didn't get that money back. And the Supreme Court of Canada even dismissed leave on the Jaswal decision from the BC Court of Appeal that said, in these circumstances, you're not entitled to it. It's a substantial change in the law. The government is presumed to enact legislation in good faith. And so therefore, even though you did what you were supposed to do under the law as it was, and the law was unconstitutional, you did the crime, and so you do the time. I mean, to put it very colloquially, because an IRP is not a criminal offense. But if that's the way that constitutional remedies are granted, and Section 24.2 of the Charter doesn't provide for automatic exclusion of a breath sample result when it's taken from you, um, and, and doesn't provide for a person um, to have that just automatically kicked out uh, from trial, but instead you have to persuade uh, a judge that it was a, you know, a serious impact, um, or sorry, a serious breach, that it had a significant impact on you, and that the administration administration of justice overall would be better served by excluding the evidence. If that's the standard you have to meet, where the government is presumed to act in uh, good faith in passing laws, so there's the absence of bad faith, and the officer is merely following the law as it was written, again, the absence of bad faith, where, like, where do you go? How do you square that? And so it's, it's, it's arguable that the better set of foundational facts for a constitutional challenge to random breath testing comes from a refusal case where somebody asserts their constitutional right. But if you're ultimately convicted of refusal, um, understanding, of course, that the challenge to this is not going to happen and uh, start and end in provincial court, that it's going to go provincial to summary conviction appeals to court of appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada and, you know, cases from the various provinces that inevitably will go different ways are all going to get there in one big hot mess, you're essentially going to be in a position where you have to pay this tax and have this higher penalty for asserting your right. And it's like the government is trying to goad people into complying with the unconstitutional law by saying, well, we're going to doubly punish you. The punishment is going to be twice as bad if you refuse than if you fail the test. Um, well, not if you fail the test. If you if you blow between uh, 80 and and 119 um, milligrams of alcohol and 100 milliliters of blood, and even on the higher blood alcohol level, it's still not going to be that bad. It's going to be the same as the worst penalty, uh, the worst minimum penalty available to you under the law. Uh, I, I just see that as so disingenuous and almost as a form of like statutorily compelled extortion from drivers. Either we're going to extort your breath sample from you or we're going to extort $2,000 from you. But either way, if you don't comply, you're going to be facing these consequences. And uh, so I encourage everybody and I remind everybody now that we have random breath testing and now that we're heading into the weekend um, and it's the weekend leading up to Christmas when I know you're going to be at Christmas parties, you're going to be at family events, you're going to be having a couple glasses of wine and having to make that judgment call about whether or not you should get behind the wheel um, or you're going to abstain and be the responsible person and not drink and drive regardless of your situation. Do not refuse because the penalty if you refuse is as bad as if you blew the highest reading. And so you may as well just provide a sample because it could be better to blow 
And the government basically has you, I mean, in my blog, I said they have you by the pocketbook. But on this podcast, I'm going to say the government has you by the balls. And it's completely unjust. Um, and I, I mean, my hope is that this will very quickly be challenged, very quickly be constitutionally um, uh, considered by the courts and very quickly struck down. And I think we have the right landscape in BC to make that happen. I think we're going to see that happening here very quickly. And I don't just think it. I know it because I have a plan and I'm going to work on it as soon as I possibly can. But uh, in the meantime, please put yourself in a position where you're not facing the worst possible penalties because the federal government has repeatedly been saying that they believe that this law will be upheld by the courts. And the last three impaired driving judgments, including one on Monday of this week that came from our Supreme Court of Canada, have not been favorable to people facing impaired driving charges. So we have a lot of work to do and a huge uphill battle Regardless of my views of the of the complete unconstitutionality of this, we still have a lot of work to do and a huge uphill battle, and I don't want anybody out there to be in a worse position for having asserted their constitutional rights than they could be otherwise. So please um, just heed my advice and provide a sample into a roadside breathalyzer if you're asked, even if you've never touched a drop of alcohol in your life. If you have any questions about the um, new changes to Bill uh, to the criminal code under Bill C-46 that are now in force and effect, please reach out to me. Um, you can reach me at 604-685-8889 or online at vancouvercriminallaw.com. And we also, next week, are having a podcast special with the people who quite literally wrote the book on impaired driving. So we've got the authors of the most recent and up-to-date impaired driving textbook coming on next week to talk about all of these Bill C-46 changes that are now in force and effect and give you the straight goods uh, right um, at the time that you're going to need the most. So next week is going to be another interesting and important episode to listen to if you are a driver in this province. And thank you again for tuning in to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and we will continue to keep bringing you a podcast every Friday until I get too tired to ever do this again, which isn't going to be anytime soon. Thanks very much and have a nice week.